Our scripture for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. We just heard from Ephesians, uh, from Paul, the other Paul. We also heard from Paul Kenyon. But uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. And this is going to mark the beginning of a little series on Ephesus. And to begin with, I want to start by reading uh, Eugene Peterson's introduction to Ephesians in the message. He says this, He says, Paul's letter to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. He begins with an exuberant exploration of what Christians believe about God, and then, like a surgeon skillfully setting a compound fracture, sets the belief in God into our behavior before God so that the bones, belief and behavior, knit together and heal. Isn't that, isn't that elegant? Isn't that great? He's, he's a master with the words. But, uh, so we're going to explore Paul's knitting together of belief and behavior in, the, in his letter to the churches at Ephesus. Uh, it's, it's a letter to the established church, and it's a celebration of all that is right and good with church. Uh, and it's also a warning and a challenge. And given all the this all of this, certainly it's an important book for us today. I think we also face 
similar situations that Ephesians had to face. So in this, in this uh, section today, Paul begins by reminding the gathered church that they were chosen, that, that God called them together for a purpose. God chose them to be holy and blameless. Now these are intimidating words, right? I've ne- it's, it's been a rare day in my life when I felt holy and blameless. And I think they're a bit of an intimidating word. So, uh, but biblically, they have a little bit of different edge to them than perhaps we give them. Uh, when it comes to the word holy, there's two things you need to keep in mind. First, holy doesn't mean perfect and unblemished or without flaw. Some t- something that is holy in, the bi- in biblical terms is something that is sacred. Something that is set apart for sacredness. It's worth much it's revered, it's cared for, and it's set apart for sacred duty. For example, we could say that this sanctuary is holy, amen? Because it's set apart and, and made sacred, not, by, not because it's, you know, it's been, uh, there's something special about its architecture, although there is, not because of the gold leaf on the wall, uh, it's not holy because nothing bad ever happens in here. It's holy because we have set it apart for the sacred worship of Christ. It's only holy when we're in here worshiping, amen? Right? When Bob's vacuuming, it's not nearly as holy as it is at the moment. <laughs> Although he's trying awful hard. <laughs> Second, holiness is not something that we create in ourselves before coming to God, it's something that God kind of creates in us. God makes us holy. In other words, God sets us apart to be holy. God, it is God who considers us sacred. Isn't that a blessing? Right? You don't need to go to God and say, I'm going to do my best to be sacred. I'm going to do my best to be holy. God says, no, 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 no. I consider you sacred. I consider you holy. Amen. What a blessing that is. Also, this notion about blameless, that is not to blame. And, you know, this needs to be juxtaposed against the idea that humanity was somehow in some kind of tainted state, right? Uh, We can look to the Adam and Eve story for the perpetuation of this idea. Here, I believe what Paul is saying is that Christ is no longer, we are no longer held responsible for the state of the world, but we now stand before God on our own. In other words, as much as our good folks, uh, uh, you know, over the last couple hundred years have tried to make a case that we are to blame for the fall of humanity or that, that, you know, Adam is to blame, we're not to blame for that. God says, no, you are blameless before me. Now don't screw it up. That's kind of what it, how it goes. So in God's sight, in spite of the way we see ourselves, this is how God created us to be seen. As holy, set apart by God, and blameless. That is, you're not to blame for things you didn't do. Amen? What a relief. I could end it there, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing Paul gets into here is that God chose us for adoption. And I can't emphasize to you enough how crucial, how central kinship was in the Bible. Now, we, you know, we have, in this country, we have, we have structures 
that are part of our culture, part and parcel with what it means to be an American, part and parcel with what it means to be human in the world we live in today. Um, and we have structures that, that kind of run our society. We have governmental structures. We have you know, leaders who are elected, and, and you, know, you can think of all the structures we have that make our system run. In the ancient world, in the biblical world, their main structure, in fact, their only real structure was the family. Their government was based on a family structure, the pater familia, it's in Latin. That is where there's a head of the household, and then that house, uh, and that house, the structure of that house takes care of everybody. And so if you were not connected to a family somehow, you were, you were outside the structure, right? In the same way, people that are outside our structures seem to get lost in the system. Homeless vets. I don't know why there aren't Humvees running around picking up homeless vets, but somehow they've gotten outside of the system and they're lost and without hope. And they're holding cardboard signs up. So uh, in that same way, if, in the ancient world, if you were not connected to a family, you were lost and without hope. And so God uses this language to talk about the relationship we have through Christ. Through Christ, God is saying, you are now in my family. So don't, you are not without hope. You are not without resource or, or attainment, Right? You will never be left out or lost without somewhere to go. Quite a remarkable claim for that day. And none of the other deities would, would call humans part of their family. In fact, people were just play toys to the other deities. I mean, think of the, the Greek myths and the Roman myths, right? Their gods, the, the gods of the, the Roman Empire were just, people were just playthings to mess around with god yahweh in christ says no you are my own children in my own family joint heir to the throne of christ so and and paul goes on to say that god chose us for redemption the greek word here really was a term used to talk about slaves to talk about when slaves whose debt had been paid or had been made free, had been set free, uh, or had been purchased, and uh, you know they had re- they had bought their own freedom. Literally, Christ set us free. Redemption means Christ sets us free from slavery, slavery to the law, slavery to our own sin, our slavery to the things that hold us back or the things that bring us down. Jesus says, "You are redeemed." That is, you're set free from those things. Don't ever be shackled, and Paul begs us, don't ever be shackled to the law again. Don't ever be shackled to your sin again because Christ has redeemed you. That is, Christ has set you free. It's about freedom. It's about being set free to become who God intended you to be all along and not to be shackled down and, and, and uh, enslaved by either our own sins or the sins of the world. So what a, that's, a, that's another great word that, that sounds intimidating, but I think it put in the context of freedom uh, really becomes meaningful for what, what Christ can be for us today. And so God chose us for redemption. Paul goes on to say God chose us 
to have knowledge, uh, knowledge of the mystery of his will. That is to say that God's not, God's not keeping it all a secret about what God wants for you and me. God is, in fact, screaming at the top of his lungs. <laughs> I want you to be whole. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be connected with one another. I want you to be one in love. And I want you to transform this world so that everyone would recognize their adoption as children of God. There's a, you know, and this is an important point for Paul because there, was, there were a lot of groups who said, no, 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 shh, 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 wait a minute, shh. God has special knowledge for certain people. And you're not supposed to talk about it. Right? And so there were a lot of secrets. There was supposed to be this, this great special knowledge that only, only the enlightened had. And, there, and it was all a big secret. Paul says, no, God's real clear, real explicit. In fact, God reveals God's self through a person, Jesus Christ, who, who shouts it from the mountaintops and declares it for all the world to see. There's no mystery here, or there's no secret here about the mystery of God's will. So that was an important uh, point for Paul as well. And God chose to seal us to these promises through the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the evidence of God's presence in your life. Right? For Paul, for Paul, what, what showed the world that you were connected to the promises of God through Christ was the, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. In the things, that is, Paul saw the, Paul said you could see the Spirit at work in the lives of the followers of Christ. That's the evidence of the promise and the connection that we have with God. And I think it's a pretty good gauge, if you ask me. So three things come to, come to my mind as we, as we talk about the blessings offered here by, Paul, uh, by God in, in this letter to Paul. One is, if we look at chapter 10, Paul says that God has a plan. It says this, uh, that as a as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what Paul is, is telling us is that God has a plan. It's not just random, but that God has a plan. Now I've got to qualify that because last week I said I didn't think God did things, right? Or I said some kind of, some kind of uh, uh, heathen thing like that. But uh, blasphemy, right, last week. <laughs> but you know, I believe God ha has a plan. I just don't think God necessarily manipulates us into those plans and makes things happen for us. But I think that plan is being made well known to us that God's plan, uh, as said here, and it's not a plan like, like I walk into a restaurant and God arranges it so that I pick up a missionary's coat instead of my own coat and accidentally find a Bible in there and I start to read it and all of a sudden I have this big revelation. No, not that kind of plan. Uh, I mean by a, what I mean by a plan is that God is trying to bring the whole world together into the kingdom of God. Furthermore, God is just not wishing it would happen or suggesting that it's happened or hoping that someone else makes it happen, but God has actively taken, taken action to get us in line with this plan. Most significantly through the actions of Jesus Christ who came declaring the kingdom of God. Who came showing us what it looks like. Begging us to, 
to reveal it to the world, tra- turning the world upside down where, where the, the meek are exalted and the, the high are made low. That's the kind of plan God has for us and, and revealed to us in the person Jesus Christ. And the other thing that is said in chapter 10, in verse 10 here, is that this plan is not just for a few, but it's for everybody. In fact, it says here that uh, it says that to gather all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth, the whole Megillah, right? It's not just a little bit of it. God's trying to redeem and, and, and make holy and blameless the whole thing and all of us, all of humanity. It's not a plan just for a select few. It's a plan for all of us. And it includes everybody. Jesus represents the removal of these obstacles that get in the way of all of this uh, for us. God, it's as if God's trying to say, stop throwing up the roadblocks. I've given you everything you need. The, the law was seen as an obstacle. And this is a big one for Paul in particular. The law was an obstacle, so Christ fulfilled it. And we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. Our sin, our own sinfulness, our own missing the mark, our own stumbling and falling was an obstacle, but we are no longer condemned by that through Christ's forgiveness. Christ says you're forgiven even before you screw up. So don't be scared to live a life of boldness. And our own feelings about ourselves and our own sense of unworthiness were an obstacle. And so God did what? Adopted us into the family of God. We are children, joint inheritors with Christ of the Most High God, the Creator of heaven and earth and the entire universe. So stop beating yourself up. What an incredible thing, chosen and adopted by God. So let your own unworthiness fall to the wayside and embrace this idea that you are worthy in the eyes of God. God tries to take these obstacles out of the way. Of course, with all of that comes, you know, we no longer have excuses either, right? God also takes away all the excuses we have about why we can't be the people God wants us to be. Literally, God has just put the ball in our court and said, you are equipped, you are given everything you need to become the people you were created to be. I've taken all the roadblocks out of the way. And I've given you all you need to make it happen. We've been equipped, as it says, for every good work by the Holy Spirit. All of this is hinged on one hope, that those who embrace it, praying that's you and me, right? Those who embrace it will live out a life that brings praise and glory to God. That's what Paul says. The whole, the whole of what knits belief and behavior together is to be a people who live to the praise and glory of God. Looking outside of ourselves to something bigger. Because being a Christian is not something we do. Right? 
being a crowd, you know, what are you doing today? Well, I'm being a Christian for an hour. Then I got to go shopping. Then I might, you know, go sit in the sun for a while. No, that isn't it. That's not right. It's not, it's not like being a Republican, right? I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm an independent, as if there was one. It's not just something we choose to label ourselves because it reflects our values and represents our interests in the world. It's who we are to our very core. We are followers of Christ. And, and, and the Bible uses very strong language about this. Again, this adoption language. Purchased for a price. Lashed together with Christ. Enslaved to the hope of Christ and the gospel, right? These are the kinds of languages being used to describe this connection that we have with God. And I think what's trying to be said is that it's who we are to the very core. We are Christ's. We belong to Him. Paul says, I am, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me, lives in me. That doesn't sound like something you just do like a hobby, like stamp collecting, which is called philately, by the way. So we try to learn something new. <laughs> it's more like being a diabetic, right? Being a Christian's like being a diabetic, right? Uh, diabetes, diabetics learn to deal with their diabetes in many different ways. But, what's, but what it seems to take is a lot of vigilance. My father has diabetes, and it, he has to check his blood. There was a kid at camp this last week who had diabetes. He had to check his blood. He had to take insulin shots. Whatever the case, there is constantly and acutely aware of the fact that they are diabetic. It's always right there. There's no time when you can say, well, you know what, today I'm not going to be diabetic. It's always there. And when blood sugar gets out of balance, the effects can be striking. I was watching my dad once, who all of a sudden, uh, his blood sugar got low, and and I watched him kind of lose grip with what was going on around. It was bizarre. I mean, maybe you've experienced it. Where it, all of a sudden, the effects of it were so pronounced that, uh, you know, it scared me. It was very scary to watch. And the next thing beyond that is a diabetic coma, right? Where you're completely out. And, and you're, I'm sure you're seeing where I'm going here. When we fail to treat our Christianity with constant regimen, we begin to lose touch with the reality of it. Right? If we don't treat our Christianity, we don't manage it, <laughs> then we lose it. And often we can fall asleep. Now the difference is that with diabetes, one is trying to dull the effects, and yet with Christianity, we're trying to en enhance it. We're trying to bring those effects out. So to be a Christian is to realize in a radical way that what your life is about and what my life is about is God. It's about the praise and the glory of God. It's about living out this connection to God through Christ, as Paul says, to the praise of His glory. We can make our lives about our careers, but jobs can be lost, as many have experienced. We can make our lives about money, but money goes as easily as it comes, or in my house, even faster. <laughs> 
We can make it about our family and our relationships. And those are good and important things. But even that can fall apart and we can lose people we love. We can try to make our lives about something else, but everything else is fleeting. Listen to what Solomon, uh, the Ecclesiastes, which is attributed to Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon says, reflects on his life of, of pleasure. And he has this to say, I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this was only vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What, a, what use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which, from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. He tried it all. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all was vanity and a chasing after the wind, and there was nothing gained under the sun. Solomon tried it all. Lived for pleasure. Lived for gathering stuff. Lived to be rich. Didn't deny himself anything. Sucked the marrow out of all that life had to offer. And at the end of the day, it was nothing. Because he was lacking that bigger picture. That connection to God. That is really what it's all about. And we, as followers of Christ, as Christians to the core, our lives and our being flow from this reality. And that is what matters in the world. When we lose sight of the fact, it begins to show in, in our sometimes, in, it sometimes shows in deeply hurtful ways. But when we embrace it, our lives become part of something solid. Something sure. This is what Solomon was, was complaining about. None of this really amounted to much. I worked. I, I did everything I could to gather it all together. And it meant nothing at the end of the day. And what God offers us through Christ is something that matters. Something that does connect us to one another. 
that does transform the world, that does leave a legacy of worthwhile toil, that does pay off in the abounding love of God shared among creation. All, at the end of the day, praise of His. Let us pray. Loving God, as we listen to this story coming to us from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we hear it as a letter to us, as a challenge, as a reminder that who we are to our very core is your children and followers of your Son, Jesus Christ who have embraced a life that points to you, gives you glory, that we might be a part of something bigger than ourselves, that draws all of creation toward you. That that what worthwhile life looks like. Help us to shape ourselves and our choices and our lifestyles to match that vision that Paul gives us through this letter. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.